be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 25. I'll read beginning in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, last Lord's Day, we read the whole of chapter 25, and we explored a number of contrasts that were presented to us in the chapter, of course, the greatest one being the contrast between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The contrast exists, we saw, because of the sovereign decree of God. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Malachi 1, 2, and 3. And so we focused our attention last week on the election of God. God chose Jacob. And Paul says that God chose Jacob so that his purpose according to election might stand. And we defined election by quoting Richard Muller in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, which says that election is the positive part of predestination, according to which God chooses in Christ those individuals who will be his eternally. So predestination encompasses both election, God sovereignly choosing some for salvation, and reprobation, God passing over others, leaving them in their sins. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So Jacob was elect, 
Esau was reprobate, and this caused a marked contrast between the two brothers. But this week, I want to explore uh, the contrast between them further, because there are many ways in which Jacob and Esau uh, contrast with one another, and several of those contrasts are presented to us in this text. The largest one is in their relationship to God. But as the twins are born, we're given uh, descriptions of them physically and also descriptions of their character or their personalities uh, that serve to contrast them further. One is elect, the other is reprobate, but there are other obvious contrasts that even uh, someone could see and observe in the life of these two boys uh, who might not know uh, of God's choosing of Jacob over Esau. And so we read in verse 24 and 25. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. So Esau, the first one to be born, he comes out of the womb with this almost comical description. He's red and hairy all over. Not just on his head as some babies do, but he is like a hairy garment all over. So they name him Esau, which literally means made ready. That's what the word means. In other words, he didn't just have hair on his head. He had hair on his arms, his legs, his chest. I kind of picture him almost with a beard when he's born, which is kind of comical. I don't know anybody named Harry personally, but I don't know that I'll ever be able to call someone Harry again without picturing this in my mind and perhaps chuckling a little bit. But Esau comes out of the womb made ready, complete as it were, with hair all over his body as if he were a tiny little man who was fully mature but was just short. By contrast, verse 26 tells us about Jacob. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now notice that there is nothing outstanding about Jacob's appearance that warrants remark. Esau, we're given a physical description because uh, he has outstanding physical features that warrant talking about. But Jacob, we're not told anything about how he looks, but he's named Jacob because he's gripping his brother's heel. And so the name Jacob means one who follows at another's heels or sometimes supplanter. And a supplanter is simply one who seeks and manages to take someone else's place. And we'll see that Jacob does live up to his name. But there's a contrast here between Jacob's lack of remarkable or defining physical features and Esau's obviously defining features. Between Esau's status as fully formed and Jacob's status as trying to overtake him from behind. But then in verse 27, we're given a contrast between their personalities. So the boys grew And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Now I want to go ahead and read verse 28, because you'll see why in a moment. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So there's an obvious contrast between the two boys. 
but I don't think that it's as obvious as we might think that it is. I think that we often misrepresent the descriptions that are given uh, here in verse 27. I think we misrepresent Esau, and even more so, we misrepresent Jacob. We're told that Esau was a skillful, or uh, the King James says, cunning hunter, that he was a man of the field. And then in verse 28, we see that he's loved by his father. And so we get the impression that Esau is an outdoorsman. He's a manly man. By contrast, Jacob is described as mild or plain, a man of the tents rather than the field. And verse 28 tells us that Jacob is loved by his mother. And then in the following verses, we see him cooking a meal. And so we come to the conclusion that Jacob was a mama's boy. He's a soft man. We picture him as an indoorsman, uh, someone who stays in the tent cooking with the women while his brother is outdoors with the men doing manly things. I want to challenge that interpretation this morning. I think it's all wrong. And I think that it leads to gravely misunderstanding the rest of the chapter. So let me make my case. And I work backward from Jacob's cooking through these things that are said about Jacob and then deal with Esau last. So in, in the last part of the chapter here, we see Esau, or Jacob rather, in the tent cooking stew and Esau comes in from hunting. And, and so this lends to this idea that Jacob is a mama's boy, he's in the tent cooking with the women while Esau is outdoors doing manly things. But in chapter 27, Esau will have a productive day in the field hunting And he will come in and prepare the food. He will cook a meal for his father, Isaac. So Esau cooks as well. So just because Jacob is cooking a meal is no reason to think that he is softer than Esau. Last week, we mentioned the contrast between Isaac and Rebekah in their love for the boys. And we see that in verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game and Rebekah loved Esau. Jacob. And and last week we related this contrast to the election of God. But for our purpose this morning, I just want to note that Jacob being loved by his mother contributes to our overall idea that he was a mama's boy. But as we noted last week, if Rebecca loved Jacob because she knew this was God's will, God had chosen Jacob rather than Esau, and she was simply following the will of God, then She doesn't love him because he's a soft mama's boy, but because he is elect of God. But then we find that Jacob dwelled in tents. And so we think, well, there you go. He's an indoorsman. And that's that's my word, by the way. It's actually underlined in little red squiggly here on my tablet because it's not in the dictionary. So I coined that one. He's an indoorsman as opposed to an outdoorsman. Jacob dwells in tents. And so we get this picture of him as as being an indoor sort of guy in contrast to his brother Esau who likes to be outdoors doing active things. But that's the wrong picture to get. And I'm going to resort to the book of Hebrews to make my case. Speaking of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. If dwelling in tents means that Jacob was soft, then so was Abraham and so was Isaac. 
I don't think that's what it means. I think that what it means is that he was a nomadic shepherd, like his father and his grandfather before him. And who else do we know in the scriptures who was a shepherd? David, the warrior poet of Israel. And when he offered to face the giant Goliath, remember, Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth. And he, a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. David was not soft. Being a shepherd does not make one soft and weak. Jacob was a shepherd like David was. Shepherd means being hard work. It means having calloused hands. It means having courage in the face of danger. And it means working long hours. Jacob was not a soft mama's boy. But then finally, we note that the text says that Jacob was a mild man. And so you think, all right, pastor, how do you account for that? Well, the New King James says he was a mild man. The King James says he was a plain man. And these are somewhat unfortunate translations. Uh, The Hebrew word here is tame, and it does not mean tame in English just because it sounds like it. It doesn't mean mild or plain, at least not in the sense that we would initially take those words if we don't understand what is actually being said here. This word, this Hebrew word tame, is used 13 times in Scripture. Here's the first time. It's also used twice in the Song of Songs, once in Proverbs, and twice in Psalms. Now, if you're keeping count, that means there are seven more uses of this word, and they are all used in one book of the Bible in reference to one man. So we might learn something about what this word means by considering how it's used in reference to this other person other than Jacob. So let me quote for you the very next verse of Scripture that uses this word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Blameless, that's our word. And that's how it is translated every time it is used except here in Genesis 25. The King James renders it perfect in all those places. The New King James renders it as blameless. Now here in verse 27, when it says Jacob was a mild man, the New King James has a footnote that says literally complete. So what's being said of Jacob here? That he's perfect? That he's blameless morally? I don't think so. Perfect or blameless both mean to be without fault. In fact, the Oxford Dictionary of English defines perfect as having all the required or desirable elements, qualities, or characteristics, as good as it is possible to be. The Unger's Bible Dictionary defines it saying that perfect is the the fundamental idea is that of completeness just as the New King James footnote indicated. The Holman Bible Dictionary defines it as to be whole or complete, also referred to as mature. 
what is being said about Jacob is not that he's mild or plain in the sense of being tame or domesticated, but rather that his character is complete. Perfect not in a moral sense of being without sin, but perfect in the sense of having attained maturity by taking full responsibility as a man. And we saw in CLA this morning that God is infinite in being and perfection. His completeness, his flawlessness knows no boundaries. And he is perfect in every way, in every aspect of his being. Jacob is complete in manly maturity, taking responsibility, but he's not infinitely perfect. He's not morally perfect or physically perfect, but he is completely mature as a man. It's kind of a play on words here in this text. Esau was born made ready or complete with hair, but when they grow up, Jacob is completely mature, and by implication, Esau is not. So here's the picture. Jacob grows up to be a man who takes responsibility for the family business of shepherding their many flocks. He's plain in the sense that he is what he's supposed to be. He's following in the footsteps of Abraham and Isaac. He dwells in tents as a shepherd. He fulfills his responsibilities. He does the work he's supposed to do. There's nothing remarkable about him. He's mild in that he's not unruly, irresponsible, or overly sensational. He is simply a mature man doing the work he is called to do. The New Testament equivalent would be to say with the Apostle Paul in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that Jacob was leading a quiet life, minding his own business, working with his hands, and eating his own bread. Esau, by contrast, is a man of leisure, a man of sport, irresponsible, and sensational. The family doesn't need Esau to hunt wild game in order to eat. They're wealthy. They have an abundance of flocks and herds. Remember back in Genesis chapter 14 when Lot was taken captive? There was a big battle, and Lot is taken away with some of the other captives. And it says in Genesis 14, 14, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abraham at that time, and he has gotten wealthier since then, Abraham had 318 servants born in his household who were trained for war. That's a big operation. He had flocks and herds, servants and maids. They don't need what little amount of wild game Esau can bring in by himself. Esau's not hunting because they need the meat. Esau's hunting because it's fun. He's a man of leisure. Rather than embracing the tents, the family business of being a shepherd, Esau has decided, Dad's rich. I don't have to work. I'm going hunting. And, and this isn't just a this is my hobby, this is what I do after my work is done sort of thing. This is all he's doing. He's not taking responsibility. He's retired at the ripe old age of 15, 20, however old he is at this point. He's pursuing a lifestyle of fun, pleasure, excitement, and adventure 
rather than work and responsibility. Matthew Henry says in his commentary that recreation was his business. He studied the art of it and spent all his time in it. So there's the contrast between these two men and their character. Jacob grows up to be responsible, mature, and Esau isn't. Jacob works. Esau plays. And so now we come to consider once again the final uh, pericope here in the chapter, the affair of the lentils, as I call it. And verse 29 sets the stage for us. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. So Jacob is working quietly, eating his own bread, so to speak. He's being responsible. He's cooked a meal. Long comes his brother Esau, worn out from his life of adventure, pursuing the hunt. And he comes in where Jacob is cooking this savory stew. And then verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. So Harry becomes red at this point, as I said last week. But the important thing for our discussion this morning is that Esau, the lazy and irresponsible of the two, asks his hardworking brother for a bowl of stew. Now, I said last week that Jacob should have just fed his brother rather than requiring payment of some sort. But we have to admit, knowing what we do of the character of these two boys, of Esau's lack of responsibility, First of all, we, we must note that Esau's not really in need here. They're wealthy. Esau can cook. We see that two chapters later. They have plenty of servants. Esau could have just commanded one of them to fix him a meal. But he doesn't do that. He comes to his hard-working brother and says, Give me what of some, some of what you've made. It's kind of offensive. And Jacob may have even been justified in telling Esau no. Remember what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in his second letter? For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all. I think that would probably apply to Esau in this situation. He's not working. He's just pursuing pleasure while Jacob works. But instead of exhorting his brother to take some responsibility, Jacob sees an opportunity. And so he offers a deal to Esau in verse 31. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Now, the birthright had been promised to Jacob by the word of God to Rebekah before the boys were born. Back in verse 23, one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So there's the essence of the birthright. And we'll talk more about this in just a minute. But here we see Jacob's fault, as I said last week. Abraham had been promised the land of Canaan, but he refused to obtain it in such a way that would give glory to anyone other than God in the keeping of the promise. Jacob did not follow his grandfather's example here. He could, he should have waited to see how God would bring about the promise that was made to Rebekah. Instead, he took matters into his own hands. He sought to obtain the promised birthright by his own designs. But Esau just goes along with it. In verse 32, Esau said, look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Now, Esau's sensationalizing here. 
He's not about to die from hunger. He's not that hungry. And as I said, there were servants who surely could have prepared a meal for him if he had just commanded it. He's being dramatic. But Jacob takes this as a yes to his offer. And so he makes Esau swear, and Esau does. Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here's the contrast. Esau despised the birthright. Jacob didn't. Jacob desired it. He wanted it. So what exactly is the birthright? Why would Esau despise it? What value does Jacob see in it that Esau obviously doesn't? And then what does any of this mean for us? Well, let's begin by seeing exactly what it was that Esau despised. What is the birthright? Well, the first thing we may think of is the blessing of the father. And that will happen in chapter 27. But let me point out that the blessing and the birthright are not exactly the same thing. In chapter 27, when Jacob deceives his father into giving him the blessing, Esau responds to the news of this deception by saying, Is he not rightly named Jacob, or supplanter? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. So Esau, at least, sees the birthright and the blessing as two different and distinct things. But that only tells us what the birthright isn't. What is it? Well, the birthright includes several things, and one of the most well-known aspects of the birthright is that it includes a double portion of the inheritance. And so we read in Deuteronomy where Moses is giving instructions uh, to the nation of Israel, and he writes to them concerning the firstborn and the inheritance rights. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 21, If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have both borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, that passage is dealing with uh, preventing preferential treatment on the part of the father. But it makes the point that the birthright includes a double portion of the inheritance Now, along with the double portion comes increased authority and increased responsibility. The firstborn inherited not only a double portion of the material wealth, but also the authority of the father over the household and his responsibility for it. So if the father is a king, then the firstborn becomes king by birthright. And so we read in 2 Chronicles 21 that before Jehoshaphat died, he distributed to his sons. It says their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. 
Now, we saw something similar happen in Genesis 25 when Abraham gave gifts to his other sons and sent them away, the sons of the concubines of Hagar and Keturah. Those were not the wives concerning the covenant promises. And so Abraham gave their sons gifts and sent them away, but he gave everything he had to Isaac, his son. Now, this includes more than just wealth. It includes the status as the head of the family business, the authority that comes from being the head of the household. So the firstborn receives a double portion of the inheritance along with whatever authority the father has to pass along. Additionally, the firstborn inherits a special place spiritually in the family. He becomes the family's priest in a manner of speaking one through whom God speaks and who speaks to God for the family. In Exodus, while Moses is on the mountain receiving the word from the Lord, the people get impatient. And so Aaron makes them a golden calf. And they call this statue, this idol, they call it Yahweh. And they worship it. And when God tells Moses what is happening, he comes down the mountain to put a stop to it. And he asks, who is on the Lord's side? The sons of Levi, the tribe to which he belongs, rally around him. And they act as God's instrument that day, putting 3,000 of their fellow Israelites to death because of their false worship and idolatry. Later, in the book of Numbers, the Levites are then rewarded for this episode Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. The firstborn of each family was intended to serve the Lord, but the Lord takes the Levites as a tribe, as a whole, instead of the firstborn. So the firstborn inherits a double portion of the wealth. He inherits the father's civil authority. He inherits his father's place as the spiritual head of the family. That's the birthright. Now we have to ask ourselves, why would Esau despise this? What does it mean that he despised it? Well, in the book of Hebrews... After the Hall of Faith in chapter 11, chapter 12 encourages us to continue steadfast in the faith, to endure. And it tells us that we are to endure a couple of things as believers. One, we are to endure hostility from sinners in verse 3. And then in verse 7, we are to endure chastening from the Lord. And we are to hope for things to come. But it warns us that we should carefully examine ourselves, saying in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, to be a profane person means to be godless or worldly. This is Esau's problem. He's worldly. He had his affections set on the things of this world. He loved his sport, his recreation, his adventure. I'm not talking about having a hobby. I'm talking about he centered his entire life around having fun. That's all he was about. I imagine him as what we might call today an adrenaline junkie or a thrill seeker. And because his gaze is fixed on his next thrill, his next adventure, his next hunt, 
his own pleasure and recreation, he couldn't see the spiritual and long-term blessings of waiting on the Lord. Now, remember what he says when Jacob offers the deal. Esau said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? He's sensationalizing, right? He's not about to die. He's not starving to death, literally. But what if there are more to his words than simply hunger? Consider this. Abraham, we were told earlier in the chapter, lived to be 175 years old. Isaac was 60 when the boys were born. There is some possibility here, a good one, that the boys might be as young as 15 when this episode takes place. If the lentil stew was indeed a dish that Jacob was making to mourn Abraham's death, as the Jewish commentators suggest, even if it wasn't, they were still likely young men. Esau, we will be told at the end of chapter 26, gets married when he's 40. Neither one of them appears to be married at this point. So the boys are somewhere between 15 and 40 when this event takes place. If they're 40 at the time, and if Esau expects that his dad might live as long as granddad did, actually he lived longer, but if he's thinking, well, grandpa lived to be 175 and I'm 40 now, dad is 60 years older than me, that means he's 100, that means I have to wait 75 years before I inherit. That's a long time. The inheritance is only good to him if he can use it to continue his sporting lifestyle. He's not interested in the responsibility. He's not interested in spiritual headship. He's interested in having fun. And if he's only 15, then he's looking at 100 years to wait for the inheritance, which may be likely considering that there's kind of a contrast here. Abraham was 175 when he died. We know that he was 75 when God called him. That means that Abraham spent 100 years living in the land of Canaan, 100 years in which he, to quote Hebrews 11, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And after 100 years of waiting, he died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off having been assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that he was a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. Abraham waited a hundred years by faith, knowing that he wouldn't receive the promises, that his descendants would some 400 years in the future. Esau can't wait a hundred years. He can't wait 30 minutes for someone to fix him a bowl of soup. He wants it now. So he trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. Esau was so captivated by the immediate pleasures of this life that he had no patience to wait for long-term blessings. He despised the birthright because he didn't value it properly. He didn't value it properly because he wasn't spiritually mature. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, did value the birthright. He desired it. He was willing to set aside short-term pleasure and to give his stew to his brother in pursuit of long-term blessing. Now, he, he didn't go about it correctly. He should have waited for God to keep his word rather than trying to bring it about himself. But at least he desired the right thing. Now, the interesting thing is we've seen Abraham make the same mistake with the birth of Ishmael. God had promised a son. 
Abraham got tired of waiting, took matters into his own hands, tried to have a son with Sarah's maid, Hagar. Now Jacob has done the same thing. He's taken matters into his own hands, and this won't be the last time. He's not perfect morally. Neither was Abraham or Isaac. In fact, we see Isaac's faults in this chapter and the next. Here he loves the son that God hates because he's thinking with his belly. In a way, Isaac and Esau are very similar here. In the next chapter, Isaac will follow Abraham's example, lying about his wife. And in chapter 27, he will try his best to give the blessing to Esau that God said belonged to Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all sinners. They all have their faults. But Jacob at least is desiring the right thing. He desires the birthright, and Esau despises it. Esau chose the fleeting pleasures of this life over the long-term blessings of God, which is ironic because Esau was a skillful or a cunning hunter. But in this case, as Matthew Henry said, plain Jacob made a fool of cunning Esau. So what are we to learn from this business with the birthright? Well, first... I think that we can learn from the foolishness of Esau's short-sighted thinking in the matter. Recognize that he made a foolish bargain. I mean, this was obviously foolish. The birthright for a bowl of stew? What was he thinking? But we're prone to the same sort of foolishness if we're honest with ourselves. Anytime that we give in to sin, we're making the same sort of short-sighted trade. We're giving in to short-term pleasure instead of waiting for long-term blessing. When we entertain lustful thoughts, there's passing pleasure in that. When we give in to our anger, there's a certain cathartic pleasure in expressing those emotions and releasing them. When we engage in a juicy bit of gossip, we feel a little bit of pleasure, kind of like eating a sweet morsel. Isn't that what Proverbs says? But ultimately... Any of these sins and all other sins are damaging our souls and robbing us of eternal rewards. And as believers, we must recognize that Christ suffered and died on the cross because of these sins that we so flippantly enjoy. It displeases our Heavenly Father when we value these things more than the sacrifice of Christ, more than the long-term eternal rewards that he has promised us in the kingdom. We were made in the image of God and designed for holiness and righteousness, not for sin and corruption. So what can be done about it? Well, in Colossians, the apostle makes the point of reminding us that Christ is the firstborn over all creation and chapter 1, verse 15, that he is the firstborn from the dead in chapter 1, verse 18. And what that means is that by birthright, the inheritance of the kingdom is his. And so Paul calls it the kingdom of the son in Colossians 1, 13. By birthright, all of the authority of the father is his. He is the head of all principality and power, Paul tells us in verse chapter 2, verse 10. By birthright, He is the head of the household. He is the head of the body, the church, we're told in chapter 1, verse 18. By birthright, the priesthood is his. 
For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. That's the job of a priest. Then the apostle reminds us that we are partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, but only if we are in Christ by faith. And then he says in chapter 3, if then, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. The King James says to set your affection on things above. Means to give your mind to contemplating, dwelling on, and desiring the things that are above. And so we're told to give our minds to these things, to the things of God, heavenly things, not the things of this world. It doesn't mean that we ignore the activities of daily life, work, family, cooking, cleaning. We have to do those things, but we don't set our affection on them. We don't set our affection on our hobbies and the thing. It's okay to enjoy things. It's okay to enjoy hunting, but we don't set our hearts on it. We set our hearts and our minds on things above. The apostle goes on there in Colossians to tell us what we shouldn't give our minds to. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. The things that the Christless, profane world embraces. We just get on social media. Go on Facebook. Any group that you're a part of, Look in the comment section. You will see all of these things that he just listed that we are to put off, put to death in our lives on full display in the comments. The world values these things. The world sets their affection on things below. Look at our entertainment culture. You will see that the world values the same things that Esau valued. Recreation, sport, entertainment, adventure, thrill-seeking, and fun. But we are to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. To dwell on the Word and let the Word dwell in us, Paul says in Colossians 3.16. Back in Hebrews chapter 12, where it called Esau a profane person, and cautioned us to carefully consider our own hearts so that we don't fall into that same trap, Scripture exhorts us to endure, and in doing so, it points to Christ as the ultimate example of endurance. And it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, this is key, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of the joy that was set before him, the joy that would come in the future, in the kingdom, he was able to endure the suffering of the cross. So rather than pursuing the temporary pleasures of this life like Esau did, we are to set our minds 
and our affection on things beyond this life. Endure hostility from sinners and strive against sin, as it tells us in verse 4 there in Hebrews, for the sake of eternal reward, for the sake of eternal joy. But if we overvalue the things of this world, we will undervalue the blessings of God in eternity. If we fix our minds on the things of this world, we will lose sight of the inheritance of the saints in light. But Hebrews 12 reminds us, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Esau did not do that. He did not value the things of God. He did not fear God. He valued the things of this world. We are to set our affection on things above where Christ is. And therefore, we will value what God values. Let's pray.